Hey, good morning, everyone. We have a couple quick announcements for you before you hear the amazing Jason Coker give you an amazing sermon. So here we go. The first is, is if you are new, we would love to connect with you. You can scan this QR code here that you're seeing on the screen, and actually this will give you the link for all the other announcements as well. If you point your phone at that little QR code, you can fill out the connect card and you can see all the RSVPs for the upcoming announcements as well. So our next announcement is we are starting our Roots class up again, which is really exciting. This is going to start on January 26th. It's going to be three Wednesdays in a row. It's only an hour each night on Zoom. And this is really where you learn about our legacy, our history, our values, and our practices as a church. So if you're new or you just want a refresher, this is a great course for you. We'd love to see you there. Next up, I'm really, really excited about this. This is, I think, a very interesting development in our uh, expression as a church. And so we're just so excited to announce our next class group experience that's coming up called Processing Religious Trauma. So this is a six-week therapeutic group experience led by Janelle, who has 25 years of ministry experience doing this kind of thing. Also led by Stephanie Moss, who is a licensed clinical social worker. So essentially this class is for you if you feel like in any point of your life you've experienced trauma around religion, right? So that could be for many, many different reasons, but this class is a safe space for you to go through a therapeutic experience together. It is limited to 10 people. There is a fee, it, it does cost $60. And we are doing an interest meeting, if this sounds interesting to you, on Sunday, January 23rd at 10 a.m. before church. You can see the RSVP right there. And we would just love to see you at this if this resonates for you. I think this is such an exciting thing that Honestly, I don't know any other church that's doing this, and it's a really important need for so many people. So we hope that you will join us for that. Join us for the interest meeting there. And lastly, as always, we are a 501c3 nonprofit, and we rely on the gifts and donations from people like you. So if you are able, there are two easy ways to give. You, you can visit OceansideSanctuary.org give or you can scan that QR code that you saw earlier and set up monthly donations, set up one-time giving, whatever makes sense for you. So thank you very much for joining us. And now we are going to hear Jason's sermon for the day. Enjoy. Hey guys, good morning. Oh, excuse me, I'm dropping my stuff all over the place here. Welcome back to Sunday morning at the Oceanside Sanctuary. For those of you who have been joining us, you know that we are in uh, the very early stages of a new teaching series here on wisdom. We've talked about the idea that wisdom, or excuse me, rather that Christianity is a wisdom tradition. And so we spent the last two weeks 
sort of introducing this idea of exploring our faith as a wisdom tradition, leaning into this idea that Christianity, uh, that our followership of Jesus, the things that we believe find their bodily expression in our ability to navigate the world and our ability to make good choices about our lives, to live lives that flourish, that are healthy, that are happy. That's a very different approach to Christianity than some traditions that view Christianity as simply a sort of ticket to heaven to to make sure that you have sort of fire insurance so that after you die, you go to the right place. Instead, we really see Christianity and faith as a bodily experience, something that really is uh, a way that we live our lives every day. And we think that's Uh, faithful to Jesus's teachings, especially in the Lord's Prayer that we all just prayed together. When Jesus taught us to pray in that way, when he taught us to view the kingdom of God or the power of God as something that impacts our daily lives, then that really is the wisdom that we're talking about. So today we're going to dig into this series in earnest, and we're going to begin by spending The next several weeks, the whole rest of the month of January, in fact, in the book of Proverbs, there's really no better example of a collection of wisdom in Scripture than the book of Proverbs. So we're going to start there today, but before we do, I just want to invite you, as usual, uh, to take a moment, let's take a breath together and say a prayer before we jump into this text. Would you just pray with me now? God, we thank you again for today, for this opportunity for us to gather wherever we might be. We thank you that we are able as a church to connect online, even in the midst of a global pandemic. It's our prayer, God, that this would be sort of the last gasp of this pandemic and that we would do everything we can by your grace and your wisdom to keep each other safe and healthy. But God, it's also our prayer that we would as a society begin to get back to uh, face-to-face lives again, that we would enjoy uh, the opportunity to connect with each other again. But before that happens, uh, we are going to be faithful to gathering here, to encouraging each other online, uh, to praying and worshiping together in this virtual space. We pray that you would grant us a sense of your presence as we do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, we're going to start with Proverbs, and we're going to begin at the beginning, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 1. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there, or if you don't have a Bible, you can uh, just check out the screen. There should be a text on the screen for you. It's Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to start right there in verse 1. It says, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, and it's traditional that the book of Proverbs begins with this appeal to the wisest person who ever lived. That's sort of the scriptural uh, mythology around King Solomon, that Solomon was the wisest person who ever walked the earth. And so it's sort of traditional to attribute Proverbs to Solomon. But of course, we know Proverbs was written and collected at a much later date than Solomon existed. This is actually really common practice in the ancient Near East amongst the Jewish scribes, those who put these texts together to borrow figures from history and to add their names to these collections to give them a sense of weight. But what we know, of course, is that the book of Proverbs collects sayings of wisdom from a wide variety of different sources. One of the things we're going to do this month is 
We're going to take a closer look at some of the literary devices in Proverbs and how Proverbs really reflects a wisdom that transcends just Christianity or Judaism. But for now, I want to focus on one word here in verse 1, and that is, of course, the word Proverbs. This whole collection of sayings gets its title from the first verse, where it says the Proverbs of Solomon, son of King or excuse me, Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. That word, Proverbs, is a Hebrew word, Mishli. And Mishli, that Hebrew word, doesn't necessarily mean Proverbs the way that we tend to think of that word. We tend to think of Proverbs as maxims, or maybe if we're raised in a more sort of rigid, fundamentalist expression of faith, we think of Proverbs really as a kind of collection of rules, But Mishli does not mean rules. It doesn't necessarily mean guardrails for our lives or boundaries or laws that we have to follow. The Hebrew word Mishli really is best translated as artful expressions. And that makes sense because Proverbs, as we dig into these, you're going to notice that Proverbs really are poems, that this entire book is not at all a list of rules or regulations or laws. Instead, it is a collection of poetry. And I love that this is a collection of artistic expressions because what it tells us at the very beginning is that becoming wise people, learning wisdom, isn't necessarily about using our heads. It's not about analytical arguments. It's not about logical expression. Instead, it is about artistic expression. This book tells us right from the beginning that the best way for us to attain wisdom is through the gateway of art and poetry and creativity. That's something that we're going to see throughout this book this month as we explore it together. This makes sense, of course, I think, because so much of The Christian tradition and the teachings in Christianity are about poetry and creativity and art. Like I said, the Lord's Prayer itself is a kind of poem that conveys the heart of what it means to follow Christ. We just took communion. We held up our little pre-packaged cups of communion and we took a piece of bread and we broke it and we said that this bread is the body of Christ. That is an artistic metaphor meant to skip past our doubts, past our skepticism, and use the beauty of art to convey a mysterious truth that impacts our hearts more deeply than any logical argument ever could. When we use these artistic expressions, we are impacting ourselves at a level deeper than our intellectual capacity. One of my favorite prayers that utilizes these kinds of artistic expressions is a very old liturgical prayer. It comes from the 16th century. It's called the Serum Prayer. And this is a little book about the Serum Prayer called God Be In My Head. Serum literally is Latin for head. So it is the head prayer. And this is a prayer that's been used for hundreds of years in Christianity to convey the mystery of what it means to have a relationship with God. And I want to read it to you today. And as I do, I want you to pay attention to the artistic, the poetic, the creative quality of this prayer that Christians have been praying for 
hundreds of years. It goes like this. God, be in my head and in my understanding. God, be in my eyes and in my looking. God, be in my mouth and in my speaking. God, be in my heart and in my thinking. God, be at my end and at my departing. This prayer, like these Proverbs, is is not an academic argument. It's not an intellectual exercise. It's not logical reasoning. It's not something that is located in that part of your body that thinks strictly with reason and skepticism and doubt. Instead, this prayer makes use of these powerful images to bypass that part of us and to go directly to our hearts. To use the beauty of the idea that a universal God, a God that is love, somehow inhabits my head, my eyes, my mouth, my heart, somehow inhabits my death at the end of my life is an incredibly beautiful, poetic, artistic way of allowing the mystery of God to penetrate our hearts. That's why wisdom literature is written in poetic forms. Because this is how we learn effectively, and Proverbs is about learning. This first chapter of Proverbs tells us right at the outset what the purpose of these Proverbs is, and we see that in verse 2. Proverbs are for learning about wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for gaining instruction in wise dealing, righteousness, justice, and equity, to teach shrewdness to the simple, knowledge and prudence to the young, to let the wise hear and gain learning, and the discerning to acquire skill, to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. This is all about learning. It's all about education. It's all about gaining knowledge, instruction, understanding, skills. There is something on the other side of life for each of us that we don't yet have. No matter how knowledgeable we might be, no matter how much life we have lived, this purpose right here in the middle of chapter 1 teaches us that there is some quality of God beyond our own ability to acquire. And so we need help. We need help gaining those skills, gaining that knowledge, gaining that wisdom. One of the reasons I love that this is conveyed in poetry is because Proverbs acknowledges that genuine learning, genuine education is not simply about our head or simply about our hearts, but rather it uses poetry and art and creativity to engage both. The best learning, the best education does exactly that. It engages our hearts and our minds and leads us to a place where we are wise in our bones. I love the way that this section of chapter one ends by pointing us to something that's a very particular device used in wisdom literature. Look again at verse six. It says, to understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise and their riddles. That phrase, the words of the wise and their riddles, is 
a recognition that much of wisdom literature is not just poetic, it's not just creative, but it tends to use puzzles like riddles to teach us sayings, and that those who are wise somehow always speak in these sort of confusing puzzles and riddles and stories, and we want to understand what exactly it is that they're trying to convey. And so gaining wisdom means passing through that gauntlet of picking apart those puzzles. That is a characteristic of wisdom literature. Wisdom literature uses poems and riddles and paradoxes and enigmas because puzzles do exactly what I just mentioned. They engage our minds and our hearts at the same time. When you work on a puzzle, you are solving a problem, but you are working towards something that is beautiful. It doesn't just challenge your intellect, it also enraptures your heart. It draws you in to solve the puzzle in a way that simple intellectual arguments never can. There's this famous quote by G.K. Chesterton. He's a, a 20th century British writer who loved to write fiction and nonfiction and use paradox all the time. He recognized this in ancient Hebrew literature, and he said, Job, the book of Job, is the paradox of the best man in the worst fortune. Now, the whole book of Job itself is a kind of paradox. And that whole idea, that idea of a person who lived the very best life was somehow in the worst possible condition, that basic premise is a premise that has captured the hearts of humanity for millennia now. Because the paradox itself is challenging to us. There's something not only challenging and curious about it, but there's something beautiful about the story. It invites us in to work to try to solve the puzzle. This is how wisdom literature works. And our very first puzzle in the book of Proverbs comes next. Verse 6 says, To understand a proverb and a figure, the words of the wise, the very first riddle, the very first puzzle in the book of Proverbs happens in chapter 7, or excuse me, verse 7, when it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord. Who wants to fear God? This saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom comes to us from the very same tradition that contains the Shema prayer, the greatest, most beloved prayer in all of Judaism, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, which says, love the Lord your God with all your hearts. This prayer is so central to the Hebrew tradition that Jesus picks it up and calls it the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the Apostle John, the Apostle whom Jesus loved, picks up this idea in 1 John 4.18 when he declares with confidence that perfect love casts out all fear. And so how is it then that our tradition, our faith tradition, that holds up love as not only the definition of God, but the ultimate expression of a faithful life, how is it that a tradition that is all about love can say to us with the same breath that the beginning of wisdom is to fear God? 
that is a puzzle. And it's the puzzle that the entire collection of Proverbs invites us to try to solve. What is it about God that involves fear? Should we be genuinely afraid of God? Is that the religion that we teach and preach and follow? That God is a fearsome deity in the sky who somehow is laying in wait to punish you for all eternity if you don't do the right thing or say the right thing or think the right thing? Is that what it means to be a part of a religion that is defined by love? Or is it possible that fear is a stage that we experience in the journey of faith on our way to love? Is it possible that fear is the loving like crawling is to walking or running? That it's inevitable that in any genuine pursuit of God, that before we can ever get to the place where we know love and understand love and live in love, that we must first walk in fear. Or is it possible that fear is something that we have to reckon with before we become wise? I have fears in my life. I have pain and trauma that I have experienced in my life, and I know that you have too. And one of the frustrating, enduring consequences of the pain and the trauma and the suffering that I have experienced in my life is the legacy of fear. Fear of relationships that might hurt me again, or fear of partners or bosses or friends that might betray me again, or fear that family members might somehow harm me again. And I know that in my life, I can't get to the place of wisdom until I face those fears and reckon with them. Is that what this means? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I'm going to be the worst pastor ever today, and I'm not going to answer this question for you. I think instead that what I want to do today is invite you for the next several weeks to wrestle with this puzzle. What role does fear play in our faith? What role does fear play in your life? What role does fear play in your relationship with God as you move towards a place from foolishness to wisdom? Every single one of us has to work out these puzzles together as a community, but in some way we must reckon with them alone, on our own. I can share my journey with you. I can share the ways that I answer these questions for myself, but ultimately I rob you of the opportunity to gain wisdom if I give you what I think the right answers are. So instead of doing that today, I simply want to invite you to wrestle with this puzzle. What does the fear of the Lord mean for you? 